What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me for weekly conversations on purpose with women who have found it and are impacting their worlds with it. For women our age, we've come up in this kind of what I call like Spice Girls feminism, where it's like, you can do anything, shoot for the stars, like anything is possible. But no one has actually lived it enough to be able to point to this archive of stories where it's like, look at all these women who live the kind of life you want to lead. Like instead it's like, you know, we still get shown these stereotypes of all or nothing. This week, I am very excited to be speaking to Adele Barlow. Adele is the founder of Copy & Co, a boutique copywriting agency, and is also the author of a number of books on finding purposeful work. Her latest book, Modern Woman, is a collection of essays on the balancing act modern millennial women perform every day. As Adele writes, the ideal worker is available 24-7, but so is the ideal mother. Millennial women have been told to dream big, but in reality, there not only remains a glass ceiling, but also a glass wall and a glass cliff. We talk about whether it is possible to have it all, and if so, at what cost. But to begin with, we talk about why millennial women feel like they are never getting it right. I think the reason I started sharing more women's stories on my blog is because I feel like a lot of the women I know our age, you know, mid-30s, are experiencing these situations that no one ever told them about because yes. I think our mothers had a very different experience of the workplace and even our peers, you know, it's very different industry to industry, company to company, even team to team. It depends who your manager is, what their experiences are, what their biases are, etc. So I think a lot of women underestimate that when they step back from the workforce, it's not going to be as easy as they might think to step back in. And I feel like if more people were aware of that, they might make different decisions. Equally, I feel like, you know, I have become so conscious of fertility in the last few years. And it's helped me hearing very honest, open stories from friends about their fertility journeys, their challenges. And like I said, you know, had I known more about this, maybe I would have planned my life a little differently in my 20s. And instead, I think what we've got is for women our age, we've come up in this you know, with this kind of what I call like Spice Girls feminism, where it's like, you can do anything, shoot for the stars, like anything is possible. But no one has actually lived it enough to be able to, you know, point to this archive of stories where it's like, look at all these women who live the kind of life you want to lead. Like, instead, it's like, you know, we still get shown these stereotypes of all or nothing. So it's like either you become a super successful career woman, but you're going to end up alone and you won't have a family. Or it's like you can, you know, have the warm, happy family, but, you know, maybe you'll never get employed on the same salary that someone else who made different things. But I feel like a lot of the stories that make it around the world are stories that I personally can't relate to on a, on a day-to-day level. Like I don't want to be Sheryl Sandberg. And yeah. yeah, when you think about women's business books, like that's the one that like comes to mind. And I and I think that's a pattern that is hopefully changing like with our generation, but I just I think it's interesting to share more open stories about what's actually happening with women our age as they navigate these two worlds because it's still very very fresh, I think. 
Right. So are you saying that there are still just very limited stories or blueprints that we can use as guides when we're trying to navigate our work and our lives and our relationships? I think also the fact that there aren't any blueprints shows that we are the pioneers. And I think if more women our age saw themselves as pioneers, they wouldn't beat themselves up as much about not managing to have it all because it's like, well, the first person who's trying to figure out anything is never, you know, the expert. I've, I've just personally found it interesting how so many of these conversations, whether they're around career or around family or around balancing it all, I just think there's been such a leap, so much progress from our mother's generation to ours. Yeah. And that's really inspiring. And some, I think that helps to relieve some of the pressure that I see with women our age who think they should have it all figured out. And it's like, why would you? We're all figuring it out. <laughs> no one has it figured out, you know? Yeah. Well, some people do seem like they have it all figured out, but maybe that's just a really well curated Instagram feed. But but why? Why is it, do you think, that life is so complicated for modern women? You know, we want to be, and often actually we're also told that we must be, good mothers, good partners, have independence, have fulfilling careers, have equal partnerships, be able to financially support our families. It's just it's so much. It's, it's exhausting. Why is it so complicated? Is it, is it too many choices? Is it not enough choices? So I think it starts from the fact that the systems, the systems that govern so much of our lives, work and education have traditionally been designed for men. So they haven't taken biological clocks into consideration upon design. They haven't been led or designed by women for the most part. And obviously that's changing now as more women enter the workforce. But I think once you accept that those systems aren't actually designed for you as a millennial woman who also wants a family, the easier you go in yourself because then you realize, oh, the system has a flaw in its design. It's, it's not me that has the flaw because I think it's actually perfectly natural to want to have a career and to have a family. It's just that it would be easier if people wanted one or the other. Like, And I think obviously the world would be very out of balance if only men earned income and only women you know, raised families. But that is the way it has been for centuries before. And it's only in the 60s, which is only 70 years ago, when things started to shift. So if you look at history in the grand scheme of things, I think the reason why it's so complicated for our generation of women is because, like I said, we're pioneers without being told we're pioneers. And for pioneers, it is always, by definition, difficult because you're navigating uncharted territory. I think also it's important to recognize that in our generation, because inequality has become so stark over the last 20 years, the inequality gap has widened probably even more than 20 years, you know, whereas it was financially feasible in our parents' generation to have one working parent and still be able to support a family, that's becoming increasingly more difficult. So it's not a choice anymore. It's often framed as a choice, but the reality of the world we live in, and as you say, our systems, at least in the West, but also in middle-class Asia, are designed for traditional nuclear families with one working parent. Exactly. And I think what I found at least is I 
want to hear more stories from women who are having to work. And but the truth is a lot of them are just too busy to do a lot of this online brand building and, you know, all the rest of it. And I think it's really unfair that there's just a lot of hidden privilege, I think. And there are some women whose partners enable them not to work. And that's a wonderful position to be in, but not everyone is in that position. And then there's a lot of interesting stories about female breadwinners. And I, I've become so interested in those stories as well. And I think, again, I don't think, you know, you can look at someone else's story and be like, oh, there are the answers. But I've personally found it so helpful to orient my own story when I have really honest accounts from other women about the logistics of how they do it, you know, whether it's talking about their salaries or discussions they had around mat leave or how they figured things out with their partners, you know. But I think also what's interesting and what's changed, I've noticed, between generations is our generation of women expect equality as a default, whereas I noticed that with older generations, it was just the default that the man would get to work and make the shots and make the decisions and run the household, whatever. And, you know, the woman was just often, you know, the supporting role. or the, Yeah, a supporting role. Exactly. Whereas I think our generation is much more, well, at least most women I know, they feel like co-pilots and they're looking for partners who don't control them and who they don't control. But it's more of a, you know, standing beside each other. Yeah. What is the double promise that you talk about in your work? So I think as a means of trying to encourage us women our age, our parents and teachers always told us that we could do anything we wanted. And to some extent, I do think that's true. But I think there's a huge caveat that I personally never got, which is that it's going to be really, really difficult. And you might have to take an alternative path some of the time because the double promises, the idea that we are expected to achieve in the workplace at the same level alongside men at the same time, we're meant to uphold those traditional feminine ideals of finding a partner, having kids, raising kids. And I think it's tiring. And I think it's a lot of it's a lot to ask of anyone. And for some reason, even though men our age tend to be maybe more family minded than previous generations, you know, most of the household labor, most of the emotional load, most of the childcare, at least from what I've seen, it's still, for some reason, like it still falls on the woman. So not only are women expected to, you know, hold their households up the way that previous generations did, they're also being given this completely separate set of expectations, you know, by managers and CEOs and people at work, you know, looking at them, expecting them to compete with peers who maybe don't have any of those other responsibilities. So I just, I think it's, I think it's just a lot. And I'm not saying that we can't do it. I know plenty of women who do balance both, but I think writing about the double promise, learning about it, witnessing it, made me feel a lot better because sometimes I just feel like maybe I'm getting things right in one area, but not in another area, or I finally figured things out on this front, but I haven't figured things out on that front. There's a whole spaghetti mess of messages for women our age. And I think it's normal to, to just be a bit overwhelmed and confused by it all. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is everybody might be getting it right in some areas of their life, but not in others, even if there is even a right way to get it. That's the thing, right? You can't have all of the things all at the same time, um, no matter what Instagram wants to tell you. 
that's just not the way it works. But it's a difficult realization to come to because we grew up being told that that was exactly what we could have. Um, and we found that having it all actually meant doing it all. And the only way to, to have it all is to just be really, really tired. And I think, again, a lot of it came from good intentions, but I think some of the time it was the unfulfilled professional ambitions of past generations of women being projected onto us. I think that's what I was saying earlier about how important it is to figure out like what it is that you want. Like not everyone wants to have kids and that's fine. Not everyone wants to get married. That's fine too. But some people do. And if they do, that's great. And some people only want to get married and have kids and they don't want a career. And that's fine too. Like I just, I think whatever you want, like you do you, but figuring out what you want to do I think it is actually, for me at least, it's been an actual exercise. But like I said, I think it really starts with giving yourself permission to just, you know, figure out the stuff that only you can figure out. Take it at your own pace. Everyone works at their own timeline. But I think that's the heart of where all good things start. And I feel like, especially for women, that's not a message we get told a lot. You said earlier that you've become very conscious of fertility recently. Um, so I'm sure you've heard the story that was in the press last month about how Murray Edwards College, which is one of the last remaining women-only colleges at Cambridge University, was planning to offer fertility seminars to its students. None of the other co-educational colleges at Cambridge were planning to offer this, by the way. It was just Murray Edwards College, and the head of the college, a woman named Dorothy Brine, said, she said this, Young women are being taught that all they have to do is do well in school, be successful in their career, and be beautiful. The thing that is getting lost along the way is that you forget to have a baby, which I nearly did. Okay, so I have to admit, I'm very surprised that anyone who wants to have a family could forget to have a baby because they're too busy doing other things. And I find this kind of thing extremely help, unhelpful for many reasons. Um, first of all, I think it feeds into this archetype of the selfish career woman who is forsaking motherhood because she's putting her career ahead of everything else. Uh, it completely leaves men out of the conversation. Um, and also it makes women who want children but aren't in the right relationship or women who want children but are struggling to conceive, it makes them feel like this is their fault that they didn't prioritize properly or something. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Why is fertility only the woman's responsibility? Like if you're going to have kids as a couple, the biological clock should be the couple's responsibility, not just the woman's responsibility. And it was so interesting because I saw that piece come out. And I also, I mean, I loved reading the comment section because a lot of the women were like, it's not the women who need education. Women are so aware of this from a young age. Like we know how female bodies work. It's men who need more education. It's men who need to know how fertility, you know, drops after 35. Even in my own relationship, how much the responsibility does fall on the woman to then educate the man and to tell him. And it's often women talking to each other around their fertility roller coasters and, you know, miscarriage and, you know, losing babies and just all the stuff that you see friends go through. And that becomes part of your lived experience and part of your education around how it's not just as simple as having sex once and then becoming pregnant. It's a, it's a real journey. And I think 
like I said, I was single for seven years and dating has only gotten harder. Like it is so different from back in the day where I don't know, but from stories I've heard, you know, men would call up the woman, book a restaurant for dinner. You'd go out for dinner. And then it's like, it's so different these days. Like people slide into each other's DMS on Instagram and then they start chatting online and then maybe they meet up for a drink in real life, but then everyone's talking to four people at once. Like it's just so different. So again, I think it's really, really unfair to put more pressure on young women to be like, don't forget about your fertility too. And I think instead it's about spreading that responsibility out a bit further and educating men, not just on things like fertility, but I also think there's a missing gap around just, I I basically think that dating apps encourage a form of misogyny. And I feel like that's a whole separate other conversation, but I think, I don't know. I think a lot of women, and this is a mistake I used to make myself in my twenties, equate feminism with emotional unavailability. And they think if I'm too emotionally available, if I'm too emotionally needy, I'm not a real feminist. And that's just so false. Like you can be a feminist and have emotional needs. Like you can want to have an amazing career and also want to have a happy family. Like these either or binary choices are very much previous generation. So yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the things you've raised and you've talked about it as well um, when we were talking about women in careers, it's just everything is so much more complicated now. Work is more complicated. There's so many more layers to what work lives can look like. Starting families is much more complicated because the roles within that family structure are changing. Dating is so complicated because there are, on the one hand, so many more ways to date, but that means you're, you're getting a lot of people dating multiple people, you know, ghosting. The whole landscape has become so complicated, but also the onus of figuring all of this out seems to rest disproportionately on women. Yeah. And that's the injustice of it. I think that's what a lot of women said in the comment section with that Cambridge thing. They were just like, yeah, we don't need this message. Like, thanks, but we're not the ones you need to be talking to. You know, like a lot of them, they'd love to meet guys in their twenties who were ready to start families, who were, you know, emotionally available. And it's just, it's so unfair because I often see it, you know, with girlfriends who are single and I experienced it myself and people sort of assume that all the guys out there are, you know, really lovely and you must just be doing something wrong or you must be too picky. I'm also interested in conversations around how we can make institutional changes that better support not women specifically, but families. It's, it is good for society for women to have children, right? So therefore, it's a wider social issue to support this. It's not just a woman's issue. And I'm very interested in organizations that support through really good maternity policies or flexible work or subsidized childcare. Or if women get to their mid-30s and don't have a partner but want children, can we put in place social policies that might allow her to do that on her own and still be able to support this family financially and care for it? I mean, I'm not saying it's ideal. I think most people who want to have a family want that with a supportive partner who also wants the same things. But if that's not available, then what next? I love those stories. I want to see more of them as well. I just question how much is the organization's responsibility when it comes to personal lives of the employees. And that's what's going to be, again, who knows? You know, I I saw that egg freezing policy come out 
at some of the big tech giants and I had very mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, I thought this is great that companies are trying to take female biology into consideration. On the other hand, I thought that's a bit dangerous in some ways because egg freezing is not an insurance policy. It's a lottery from what I've heard. And telling women that they can just freeze their eggs and then forget about their biological clock is also, you know, maybe not the most accurate message, but also these are organizations. So is it really their responsibility to be architects of your personal life? Like, I don't know. And and I know those organizations have, you know, deep resources and, and can't afford to do that. But, you know, what if you're a small business? Like what, what then? Yeah. I mean, there could also be an insidious side to it that, you know, because this policy exists, potentially the culture of the organization could also put pressure on women to delay starting families longer because they have this policy in place, which is not an insurance policy at all. It, yeah. It's a lottery at best. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But again, I think a lot of it comes down to teaching women to have maybe conversations around it and to, I guess, stand in their own opinions confidently, you know, because it, when I first met my partner, we had conversations pretty early on where I was 32 at the time. And I said to him, I said, you know, I think I'm starting to fall for you. If you never want to have kids, that's fine. But I don't know if we can go anywhere with this relationship. I guess what can change more immediately is teaching women that you don't have to get into a relationship with someone who doesn't want the same things as you. And you're allowed to have different desires around what you want and you can, you know, chase all of it. It's just that you might face challenges in these areas and those areas. And here are how you have conversations with yourself on these topics. Here are you, here's how you have a conversation with a partner on that topic. Here's how you decide if this partner is someone you want to be with or not. And I think that's a much healthier narrative for modern women. Yes, yes, I agree. So let's just go back to Modern Women for a moment. Modern Women is a book of essays that you completed last year in 2020 about how millennial women are redefining work and life on their own terms. And so much that is in these essays really resonates with me. Through through writing these essays, and researching these essays, what have you learned about building a life and a career on your own terms? Would you say you have the answers? I mean, obviously I'm figuring it out myself, but I think what I've learned is that it starts with knowing yourself and supporting yourself. Even if you're the only one who gets what you're doing, and even if that's just giving yourself space to do some of the reading out there around this topic. So there are books like the multi-hyphen method, which I've seen on your Instagram. You know, there's the four-hour work week, the art of nonconformity, escape from cubicle nation, the escape manifesto, everything is figure outable. Like there are, there are actually quite a few books now about creating a life on your own terms. And I think people don't tend to read those books until they've decided, no, I want to do something that's maybe a bit different, um, you know, a bit unique. And I think those books are a great place to start. And then on a practical level, I think it's important to develop a marketable skill. So for instance, I've always loved writing. You know, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't make the money I wanted to make being a journalist. So I went into comms instead for tech startups specifically. And those comms skills are what 
helped me launch Copy and Co., you know, the boutique copywriting agency I run now. And I can charge for projects, you know, on a day rate, a project rate that allows me to make enough money to lead a comfortable life. And I haven't figured it all out. And I can't tell someone else what the answers are. But I think that's been really important for me. And personally, I also think therapy and coaching are really, really important. I think it can come in a lot of forms. There's obviously traditional talking therapy, which can be really good for processing childhood stuff, family patterns, etc. Um, but I think there's also group therapy, there's group coaching, there's individual coaching. And I think they're just tools, you know, they're tools to figure out what you believe in, what you want. It's just space, I think, sometimes to have these conversations, um, but it took a while for me to learn that only I had to make sense of things while I was doing it. And I think, I think all those tools just set you up better. A, a lot of the books that you just mentioned there are books on either portfolio careers or careers that fit the so-called new world of work, which is also something that you've written about a lot. I agree with a lot of the conclusions that you make about what the new world of work looks like, that um, people's careers will be much more self-guided. It will be about creating and developing marketable skills that you yourself can use to advance your own career rather than waiting for an employer to give you that promotion or to um, take you to the next step of the ladder. But what do you think the new world of work is going to look like? So I think, especially what we're seeing with the great resignation at the moment, that employers will realize that compensation alone isn't enough. And people have been talking for years about how millennials want more purpose, et cetera. But I think it's actually more, especially post-pandemic, about creating humane workplaces. So these workplaces that are inherently flexible, they operate on trust-based management. And I know they exist. You know, there's Basecamp, an American software company. There's Patagonia, the outdoor brand. I mean, those are examples that come to mind, but there are plenty more. And I think, you know, often the conversation gets framed around women and working mothers and what's best for them. But this is about what's best for anyone. It's not just working parents. It's anyone who wants a life outside of work as well. And when I've talked to friends about why they're leaving their jobs, you know, 99% of the time people are leaving their managers, not their workplaces, and they don't feel supported at work. So I think it's about workplaces that give their employees what Daniel Pink talks about, you know, purpose, autonomy, mastery. Because I realized, you know, when I first started working, you know, it was a while ago in my early 20s, I, I wanted to work with, you know, really sexy companies tackling these big issues. But as I got older and I worked with more founders, I was like, there are some founders where I would do anything following them. Like, you know, they were just, they knew how to run really human, authentic, balanced workplaces. And I remember working in a couple of companies where I was like, if this founder decided to change this company overnight and start selling vacuum cleaners, I would still work here. Like it's not actually about what the company does. It's about how I feel when I'm working here, whether I feel these people are supporting me and developing the skills I ultimately want to get really good at. And I think that's, yeah, that's just something, maybe it's something that you realize as you get older. Um, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next decade or two. So then what have you learned from some of these amazing founders and leaders who you've worked with about finding fulfilling work or, or purposeful work, as I like to call it? So I think what's interesting is 
I think fulfillment is really different from happiness. You know, I think happiness is sipping cocktails by the beach. And if you have too much of that, it actually gets kind of boring. Fulfillment is more personal. It's about overcoming obstacles. It's about, I think it's Steve Jobs. He said, making a dent in the universe. And I have actually learned that I think a lot of the time it's actually about anger. So it's about seeing something in the world that you want to change, something that really frustrates you and getting angry enough to want to do something about it and to feel that you're connected to something larger than yourself, something that even if you spent your whole life working on it, you you wouldn't be able to fully solve. And I think that's what I've learned from working with a lot of them, that it's not like if you start a company or you find fulfilling work that you're going to be shielded from life, you know, like bad things are still going to happen. Good things are still going to happen. Um, it's just, I suppose it's almost like the scenery along the way is going to be different. It's, it's interesting to look at it that way, you know, because often the focus is very much on happiness. Um, what happiness looks like, you know, what are all of the things that you need to have? What are all the boxes you need to tick in order to get happiness? Um, but it's actually, yeah, I like the idea that it's actually about getting really angry about something, angry enough about something to want to change it. And it's hard to find, you know, yeah. and I was single for seven years in my twenties and I was so grateful to friends. One of my best friends, um, she married and had a kid quite early. And I always remember when I'd go visit her and I would complain about being single or not being able to meet anyone. And I would always remember her saying to me, like, you are so lucky. She was like, you know, yes, I have a husband and yes, I have two kids and yes, I love them so much. And it's wonderful. But I remember her being like, do you know what I would give to sit in a silent room and have a cup of tea and read a book? Like she was like, you can just wake up and do that. She, and it was so refreshing because I never thought of it that way. Again, like, especially as a woman, I always thought like, Oh, you know, if I don't tick these boxes and get married and have kids, then do I even deserve to be happy because I haven't fulfilled, you know, what I've been told is expected of me. And again, I think just having these really honest conversations was so helpful because then I realized like, okay, my friend is fulfilled. I can see that, but that doesn't mean that you're happy 24 seven. No one is just, I don't know. I just think the questions of fulfillment and happiness are really interesting. You wrote something interesting in part one of your Modern Women series of articles. You talk about how the desire to find more meaningful work um, or more fulfilling work isn't something that's unique to 30-something-year-old women who at that point where they're on the acceleration part of the curve of their career but also want to start families. Um, It was something you saw a lot with men when you were working at Escape the City. But while men felt they had no other options, some women saw having children as as almost like an escape hatch. It made me stop and think when I heard that because all of a sudden I, I really felt for men who might be in the same position but really didn't see any other routes available for them. Maybe we're, we're lucky that we have other routes. What is in that? Do you think that there's more of a stigma around a man deciding he wants to give up his career to find something more purposeful? Maybe not stigma, but I just think there are pressures that men face that we might never be able to fully understand as women and vice versa. And I think what I saw a lot of at Escape was how much pressure men put on themselves to be this provider, how much they felt like their own happiness past a certain age wasn't a factor because they 
had the golden handcuffs, you know, which is that they had kids at expensive schools, they had a big mortgage, and they were just expected to shut up and earn money. And it's it's difficult because I remember with Escape, when I worked there, I was in my mid to late 20s, and a lot of people in there were around the same age. And as I get older now, you know, I'm 35 now, and I think it is really different leaving your job at 40 years old compared to leaving your job at 25 years old. Like you have such a different set of pressures. And I do think for men, there are pressures that we might not be able to understand as women. And just like I think men need to make more of an effort to learn about the pressures that we face, I'm also trying to learn as much as I can from my partner around these experiences that men have that might be a bit foreign to us. Yeah, it's a constant negotiation, right? Who does what and how much of what in a relationship? But I think a key part of the conversation when that relationship involves raising children is that raising kids is often not viewed as work or at least not as important a job as the financial contribution to a marriage. And while obviously money is required to keep the engines of a family running, We're also talking about raising the next generations of humans. That's important work. I don't know. Everyone is trying to get it right. And to be honest, I don't know many couples who have a perfect balance of both partners doing exactly 50%. And that's probably actually an unreasonable expectation. And also relationships shift and they change over time. You know, there's the sociological sociology theory I think called the seesaw marriage and it's all about how you know things will just shift over time so maybe for five years the focus is on one partner's career and they get to do or you know maybe one person gets to be a startup founder for five years and the other person will earn money to support that dream and then maybe after five years the contract will shift and then it's the other partner's turn to like take the leap so I think again, it's it's new for our generation. And I think it's interesting how it's all being worked out. There's also a book that's called Couples That Work. And it's about dual career marriages. And again, I think that was really interesting. And again, I'm reading all these. I haven't had kids yet. So it's all sort of theory for me, but it's something I think about a lot and talk to my partner about as well, where you know, yeah, who carries the financial backpack? Who carries the, you know, childcare backpack? Like, how does that work? You know, nothing is forever. Maybe it shifts over years. At least that's what I've seen with some friends. Like maybe it's two years, one person, two years, the other person. And again, that kind of back and forth, I think is quite new. Um, Tell me about Copy & Co, how that came about, um, why you saw a gap in the market for it and how it's going. Cool. Yeah. So I have been working in comms with tech startups for, you know, about 12 years or so. And I, I just looked at my own career and what I wanted for the next three to five years. And I knew that I just wanted to get better at writing. And the thing is when you're in an in-house content role, yes, you're writing, but you're doing a lot of stuff around the writing. There's a lot of meetings, you know, just a lot of things that are not the actual writing itself. And I wanted to fully focus on my writing and have the flexibility to, you know, yeah, start a family, but then also focus on creative books, books that I was writing independently. And I also saw this gap in the market where I feel like a lot of founders and growing businesses don't 
often need a full-time copywriter, but they definitely need copy. And the difference with me is I haven't just, you know, been doing comms. Like I've worked in marketing, you know, I've done strategy product stuff for a lot of these growing startups. So I feel like I have a lot of valuable commercial experience where, you know, I'm not just looking at the content, but the broader context of it, you know, the users or the customers they're trying to reach, how they can position it, et cetera. And I just really wanted to, I think, start it as an experiment just to see what came back. I think doing something more international really appealed to me, something that gave me location independence and flexibility. So at the start of this year, I kind of just did it as an experiment. And then it really worked and just went very, very well. So I'm not going to say it was all luck because I think that's a bit of a cop-out. But I think when you've got a lot of experience in an area and a genuine passion for what you do and you want to help people in that area. Like I think, you know, it can all come together. And that's when I saw, I was like, okay, yes, every marketing team around the world needs great coffee. So this is very much something that's in demand. Um, and it has, it's gone really well. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Congratulations. So I wanted to talk about um, well, one of my favorite questions uh, to talk to guests on this podcast, and that is having had such a squiggly career yourself, what does purpose mean to you and how has that changed? So I think purpose means the reason for which something exists. And I think we often connect it to our careers, but I don't think it's as clear cut as that, right? Because I remember meeting someone ages ago, probably through Escape, and he was a trained musician, but then he went into law. He was never passionate about law, never considered it his purpose, but he became really, really good friends with his colleagues. He loved his colleagues and his colleagues became this big part of his life. And so then, you know, was his true purpose in life to become a famous musician and he didn't live that out, who knows? Or it was his purpose in life to be part of this team he was part of at work and to have these colleagues as lifelong friends. I don't know. I just know that purpose isn't always as obvious as it sounds. Like I, you know, met people who had started charities and should have, you know, on paper been living very fulfilling lives, but, you know, struggled with you know, the things they were struggling with. And I just feel like sometimes purpose can be simply, you know, living a life with people you love, doing the day-to-day stuff that maybe doesn't get, you know, picked up in the media or whatever, but is still special to you and makes you feel aligned to something bigger than yourself. And I also, like I said earlier, like, I don't think living a life of purpose protects you from pain. You know, I feel like just because you might be living your purpose doesn't mean that you're not going to have bad days. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. You're still going to have struggles and frustrations and all the rest of it. And I just feel like what I saw a lot of in my twenties is that people thought that finding purpose would be this, you know, magical ultimate protection from all bad things. Whereas I've definitely had days, weeks, months, years where I have felt in alignment and then out of alignment. And whether I'm in alignment with purpose or out of alignment, you know, life still happens. Like I have fights with people I love. There are misunderstandings. There are really amazing times and memories together. There are great trips abroad. Like it's, I just don't think it's a simple clear cut thing. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, 
I don't know if you've read Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, but he, um, he says that life is a verb. And that was one of his big learnings, basically. And that all of these things, these, these successes or pain points, um, that's part of it. You know, those are just points on the journey. And I think maybe it's useful to think about purpose in the same way. You know, it's something that you do and it's part of your life and, and some days will be good and some days will be, won't be, but it's not a destination. Totally. The books that you've written for people in their, the early part of their career. So things like leaving law and finding fulfilling work. If you could go back and speak to, well, give a piece of advice to the younger Adele who was writing those and, you know, talking to people, trying to answer those questions in the earlier part of their careers, knowing what you know now and, and also seeing that your views on all of this are much more nuanced than maybe they were 10 years ago. What would you say to her? So I think I'd tell her to trust the process and to trust herself and that eventually, you know, everything does have a way of working itself out. Um, I think, yeah, I would encourage her to, I guess, keep doing, you know, the internal work, like going to coaching or therapy, um, because those are very important tools. If you want to do something that is different from what your parents envision for you, what your friends and your peers are doing, you know, I think it's important to learn to be comfortable in the randomness. And yeah, I just think, like I said, I think everything just has a way of working itself out because, you know, yes, it was a very squiggly career, but I got to meet, you know, so many founders and build up a really great network in startups. And would I have been able to launch Copy & Co without that network? Probably not. If I'd stayed in a corporate marketing role in one company my entire 20s, like, I don't know if I would have had the skills to do what I'm doing now. And I think, yeah, it's just, I think it's just important to keep coming back to what matters to you and, and just to kind of sit through the discomfort. Like I definitely had moments where I took on roles that I just thought looked better on paper, but you know, I just, it didn't fit. And, and it was difficult to leave those things when it just felt in my bones, like it didn't fit because I couldn't rationalize it or explain it very well, but it was just a feeling I had. Um, and I think following that feeling is very difficult sometimes, but it's just so necessary to get you where you belong, I suppose. Yeah. I think it's just breaking it down and and not worrying so much. I think about where you're going, if it just, just thinking also trying to be a bit more present and thinking a bit more about today. What's next for your writing then? What are you working on now? So I'm working on featuring more stories on my blog for real women that I can relate to, you know, women who want fulfilling work and happy families. Um, You know, I'm interested in women that maybe the general global public hasn't heard of because those are the women that I can relate to, you know, like the stories around going back to work after kids or, yeah, freezing eggs, starting businesses, going through divorce. Like I'm just really interested in their story, especially when it's women from kind of random backgrounds or more international backgrounds or internationally curious. Um, and I'm tinkering around with this book called Rootless. And, you know, it's this third culture kid novella that I wrote years and years ago. And it's terrible when I read it back <laughs> now, but then there are some, there are some parts that aren't so terrible. So I'm just playing around with that. I guess that's the work of a writer, right? Like constantly re-editing and editing 
stuff and stories that you've been playing around with in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, well, thank you so much for your time, Adele. Um, I really enjoyed having this conversation. And I'm so pleased that it's not just me that finds modern womanhood so complicated. Oh, good. I loved it. It's great. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Adele. If you would like to learn more about Adele's work, I've linked to her website in the show notes. Next week, we will be talking sustainability with Claire Sonslow, the founder of the Hive Zero Waste Supermarkets and Lifestyle Stores. If you live in Malaysia, you may already be familiar with the Hive. And if you live in Singapore, the US or Europe, get ready because these products are coming your way very soon. Remember to subscribe or follow and you'll never miss an episode. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye. Thank you.